when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. How disastrous is coronavirus for the British economy? And how can the UK government kickstart growth after the lockdown brought the country to a halt? Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. Over the medium term, we must and we will put our public finances back on a sustainable footing. In other words, our plan for jobs will not be the last action. It is merely the next in our fight to recover and rebuild after coronavirus. We've just heard a clip there from the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. And in this interview special, I'm joined by the man who preceded him in the job, Sajid Javid. We'll be discussing whether the government has the right approach to getting the economy moving again and what he would be doing if he was still in the Treasury. After a career in banking and finance, Mr Javid was first elected to Parliament in 2010 for Bromsgrove in the West Midlands. He rapidly rose through the ministerial ranks, entering the cabinet as culture secretary, then business and local government minister. He was promoted to the Home Office following the Windrush scandal, and after running for the Tory party leadership, he was appointed as Boris Johnson's first chancellor, but quit after three months after a little falling out with his inner circle. Sajid, thank you very much for joining us on Payne's Politics. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I'm right in saying that you're a bit of a wine buff. I remember reading a story about you taking a big crate of wine to Chequers to celebrate with Boris Johnson there. We're recording this on the day everybody's talking about increasing taxes and calorie counts on wine bottles. Does that worry you at all? Well, it wasn't quite a crate. It was a couple of uh, bottles of wine. And I think it was well worth it. There was something to celebrate after that election victory. But there's going to be a lot of changes coming about because of this crisis. I think it's no uh, exaggeration to say that this is a crisis that will change everything. It's the biggest set of challenges, I think, facing world leaders in living memory. And uh, it won't just be about public health. It will be about everything. In your life, what's changed the most since the coronavirus entered our lives? Well, for me personally, um, well, it coincided with uh, leaving a cabinet after many years. So I suddenly found myself at home, uh, like a lot of people. And whereas I could see on TV and otherwise, a lot of my colleagues having to make you know some incredibly difficult decisions. I think I'd say that probably the hardest decisions I've been making, certainly during the lockdown, was you know who's cooking dinner and what are they making. Well, consumption is going to be a real challenge facing the UK economy. So let's crack on with our main discussion about what can be done to save it. It's been four months since Boris Johnson made the momentous decision to essentially shut down Britain's economy. In response, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak has thrown huge sums of money to save jobs and businesses, with a furlough scheme that's paid the wages of millions of workers, propping up businesses with loans and grants, and boosted public spending to try and jumpstart growth. But the cost of all these schemes will be huge. 
public borrowing is set to rise to more than £350 billion this financial year. The deficit will balloon to 18% of national income. That's twice the size at the peak of the financial crisis. Tough decisions are going to have to be made to restore the public finances. But where and how? So, Mr. Javid, when you look at the economic rescue packages Rishi Sunak put forward, fundamentally, the government seems to be deciding it's going to try and spend its way out of this crisis. Do you think that's the right approach, given where you come from on the side of the spectrum that tends to prefer smaller states and lower taxes? No, I think when you face a crisis of this size, it is right in the short term for the government to try and make up any gap in spending by spending more itself. And obviously, that's going to be partly required to deal with the crisis itself, spending on NHS, on health, but also by supporting businesses. But I think everyone accepts, and the Chancellor has rightly accepted this, is the big increase in spending is temporary. And uh, we will eventually need to get back to a position where we are managing day-to-day spending. And we want to see our economy grow. And that means making other changes alongside the extra spend we've seen in the short term, which are changes that are going to bring a much longer lasting benefit in terms of growth. So planning changes, skills and things like that. So those changes you mentioned there, planning reform is something we know is on the government's agenda and skills have been attempted many times. I remember under the Cameron government, there was that big focus on apprenticeships, on T-levels. This is not necessarily new stuff. Why do you think that's important to do that now? Because first of all, there's lots of work we need to do on skills in any case. And it's one of the big things that Boris Johnson has had as part of the re-election platform about when we talk about spreading opportunity, that also means making sure our skills agenda is fit for purpose. But with respect to this crisis, what we're sadly seeing and going to see much more for a bit is this increase in unemployment, whether they're people coming out of universities or colleges or people in jobs now not having the ability to continue that work, we don't want to see a a sort of generation left behind. So I think having some short-term interventions in terms of skills is acutely important when you have a crisis of this scale. Now, you've mentioned that this thing is going to have to be unwound at some point. I think in the past you've said that all of the schemes should come to an end by April 2021. But how much do you think the government should stimulate? When should it begin to withdraw support from this? Over what period? Well, that's already begun. So we've heard already the Chancellor has rightly said that the furlough scheme, it was always meant to be a a temporary scheme, if you carry on something like that for the longer term, it will defeat its objective, which is to support the economy. It won't allow the economy to adjust. So we're seeing that already, and some of the loan schemes are going to be phased out. I think the nature of the spending has to change. And an example of that would be, I think it's even more justified now than it was before to see a big, big increase in infrastructure spending, especially economic infrastructure spending. So this was already part of the government's plan. When I was in government, we worked a lot on the national infrastructure strategy. Rishi rightly sort of delayed that to let us get over the worst of this crisis. But when the government now brings that forward, we can afford to spend a lot more on economic infrastructure, especially with interest rates where they are, because I think that would lead to an increase in overall economic output in the long term, improved productivity. And that's what we want to see. But that's not going to help in the immediate term, because when this support is withdrawn, there's going to be pain felt by many households much deeper than we've seen already. You know, to what extent can that immediate short term harm be avoided or is it just inevitable, do you think? 
Well, the reason to withdraw some of this support after a while is actually to get a better, longer-term recovery. And that's what's going to really help businesses and get people back into work. If you continued with programs that were designed for the short term, but for, let's say, political reasons that you didn't want to turn them off, you would actually make things worse in the long term. The economy is going to go through an adjustment. Sadly, not every business uh, can be saved. And what you want to see is that those that do lose their jobs are given the opportunity to take on different roles and different jobs. And for that, you need a growing dynamic economy, which means that you're going to have to bring public spending eventually under control. Do you think the economy is over the worst of it? No, not yet. I don't think anyone can say that because there's still so much uncertainty. And there's no one out there that can say public health-wise what happens next. And I think for that reason, no one can say that the economic challenge is going to dissipate definitely over the next few months. We are also going to see as the furlough scheme is lifted, as some of the support for businesses through tax deferrals and otherwise is changed, we will see business owners having to make decisions about what to do in the longer term. And understandably, many of them will choose not to continue. And that's why I would expect unemployment will rise over the coming months, sadly. That's sort of expected. But what matters is how businesses go about the recovery. I think it was EY who have said that they believe unemployment is going to rise to 9%. And they've said it could actually take until 2024 for the economy to return to the size it was before lockdown. Do you think that prediction sounds about right? They could well be right. Let's look at the last big sort of economic shock we had, which was the financial crisis in 07, 08. That was, uh, it was bad, but in terms of economic hit, it was nowhere near as tough as what we're facing now. But it still took a number of years for the economy to recover, four or five years. And uh, for something as big as this, we already know from the ONS that just in the month of April alone, we saw the economy contract by a fifth. And uh, it will take many years to recover. But that's true the world over. There's no economy in the world that's spared from that. And if you look at countries that we compete with economically, whether in Europe, North America, they're all in the same boat. Well. Everyone loves their favourite letter to try and put on economic graph here. And everyone's talking about the V-shape, the U-shape recovery, the Nike tick. What's the letter you would pick to describe the trajectory you expect to see? I'll tell you what I'm worried about the most. And that would be a K-shaped recovery. And what I mean by that is what I don't want to see is somehow as things loosen up, slowly start getting back to normal, that it's the better off and the rich that are seeing a quicker recovery than those that were on lower incomes in frontline jobs. And there's a risk of that the world over. I'm not just talking about the UK economy, because if you're middle class on a comfortable income, and if you haven't known anyone who's been ill over the last few months, you know, a lot of people I've met have said, look, this lockdown actually worked for them. They had their nice houses, their big gardens to run around in. But the people on the front line living in small homes, going out to work every day because they don't do the type of jobs that they can do from a a desk and an internet connection. I want to make sure that that's what's focused on and we don't let this crisis in any way increase the inequalities that already exist. Now, let's just have a look at taxation for a moment, because you told MPs after Mr. Sunak's summer statement that the national debt would have to be brought under control to sustain a recovery. Do you think tax rises are inevitable? I think that something's going to have to be done, of course, to try and bring finances under control. 
And you'll also going to have to accept that there'll be certain areas of public spending that are going to need more resources for the long term. So health and social care, for example, I think are good examples of that. That money's going to come from somewhere. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Treasury are looking at options for taxation. The concern I have, though, is that you know, our tax burden is the highest it's been in over 30 years. And when you're at that level of taxation already, it's actually not very clear how you can raise more money because by increasing rates, you might find it self-defeating. It blows out a nascent recovery and you end up getting less revenue than you anticipated. What you just mentioned before about not wanting a K-shaped recovery that may benefit the better off there, but there is this question about are we going to have to have more austerity? Boris Johnson hates that word and the connotations that came with it from the last Conservative government you were part of. Do you think public services are going to have to be cut? What I would say is that when it comes to public spending, the government's going to have to decide early on what its priorities are. As I mentioned, NHS a moment ago, social care, I think these are a couple of obvious priorities and not everything can be a priority. And there are going to have to be other areas where the government is going to have to decide what's the best way to fund them. Now, These decisions are actually going to come early on because the government is rightly progressing with its comprehensive spending review. And that's a sort of top to bottom review of all government spending. It's multi-year. It's going to be this year. The Chancellor's announced it. I will say one thing, though, because I think this is important. That You said a a moment ago, of of course, this year is going to be a, a record deficit. We all get that. We know why that's the case. It is important, of course, that that deficit is brought down. But I don't think we should rush to do that in a short Time frame, And I think what certainly can be done is if that deficit is brought down year by year on a clear sort of pathway, I think the investors in our bonds, the market participants, businesses will understand that the trajectory is the most important thing. It's a rather different story from when George Osborne was Chancellor and you were Business Secretary when it was all about getting the deficit closed by the 2015 election, which didn't quite happen, if I recall. It didn't happen. We got close. You know, the deficit back in 2010 was some 10% of GDP. We've got it down to about uh, 2% of GDP. So that's a significant fall. But what that also highlights is that it is tough to balance the books, but it is also important to show the right trajectory. And when the economy is doing better, as it was between 2010 until we got to this crisis, the government rightly focused on making sure the public finances were put in order. But when you're faced with a crisis of this scale, it is right that the government responds to that by looking at what fiscal tools it has at its disposal. Now, there's two ideas that are doing the rounds at the moment for new taxes to try and solve this. One of them is a digital sales tax with the government saying that, of course, people are not spending on high streets. They're going online to places like, you know, Amazon and Apple and Netflix and all those services. It's an idea, I think, that's actively under consideration in Whitehall. Do you think it's a good one? First, I I think I'd say that we do need to support the high street. That said, I would just urge caution and two, three reasons. First, I think, again, the tax burden in this country is already high. And when you whack a new tax on businesses, there will be consequences that will potentially cost jobs and investment. And we just remember the tech sector is a thriving sector for the UK, and we've got to make sure it remains competitive. The other thing is that When it comes to the digital sector, we have already designed a tax, the digital services tax, 
which is there to account for the fact that sort of international rules around corporate taxation were written for an analog age. We need to update those. And we haven't been able to properly tax the tech giants, the Googles, the Amazons, the Netflixes of the world. And I think that's a better way, really, to go around taxing that industry. I think there should be a level playing field. We don't have it today. But a digital services tax is something that is really worthwhile. Now, I can probably guess the answer to this one already, but the other ideas for taxes going on that could be introduced to try and pay for this, one is a mansion tax and one is a wealth tax. And I think the Labour Party is almost certainly going to propose some kind of wealth tax in its next election manifesto. I assume you think they're <laughs> wonderful ideas. Um, no, not at all. I think people are taxed already high enough in this country. And to think about you know, new taxes on their wealth will, will just mean that you're pushing your wealth creators and entrepreneurs away from the UK. And we need those people now more than ever to help invest in Britain, to create jobs, to come and think of new ideas in Britain about how to generate business. And and that's one of the key things about this recovery. You know, I talk to ministers, my friends all the time, and I think they're absolutely dedicated to this and, and totally get it, that we are successful as a country economically because we are a free enterprise, low tax, sensibly regulated, free trading country. And the more we move away from that, the more economically damaging it will be. Well, one big thing we are moving away from is the EU. And we've got the real Brexit day coming at us at the end of this year. And now, when we go back to that referendum, you know, you were a lifelong Eurosceptic who backed remaining in the EU. Um, you know, some wags in Westminster said it might have been to do with the fact that you were quite close to George Osborne at that time and you were business secretary. Do you have any regrets about how you voted in the referendum? No, not at all. Look, we all had to make a decision at that time. But the most important thing was that we asked the people. They gave a, a very clear verdict. And uh, we have to deliver on that and do it in a way that is pro our economy. And I think that's what the government's been trying to do. But it's been absolutely right for the government to deliver on that referendum. Nothing else would have worked. We would have had a huge democratic problem in our country. And it actually took a fresh election and a very clear, almost like a second mandate from the British public to get on with it. Well, you said the government's trying to do this in, a, in an economically sensible way, but we know that it's going to be a very thin trade deal with the EU. We know that there's going to be 50,000 British border guards employed. There's going to be tariffs. There's going to be customs. There's going to be red tapes. In what way is that pro-business? Well, it does mean that once we've left, and I'm optimistic we'll have a trade deal on you know, zero tariffs and zero quotas and a, a bunch of other things, that it leaves us as a country free to set rules and regulations around how it benefits British business for the long term. But it also equally means that we can avoid rules and regulations that the EU may bring in in the future, because no one knows where that will go. But you, you can all now see the direction of more intervention, more and more anti-business gradually. We can avoid that too. And at the same time, we can have free trade deals with other countries. Now, they're not going to be easy. We're already seeing that. These are complex agreements. But in the longer term, that can be done. And you know, I can absolutely see as an economy, notwithstanding, of course, the challenges of this crisis, which are worldwide, nothing, of course, to do with Brexit, but as an economy, how we get through Brexit, end that transition period, and we come out stronger. 
Do you think there will be any immediate economic impact from that moment? Because obviously we formally left the bloc in January this year, but we're effectively still members, still in the single market and the customs union. When we make that transition, the real Brexit day, what kind of impact do you think that's going to have? How is life going to feel different, do you think? Well, I think that, again, because uh, my view is that we will get an agreement and that obviously helps with the transition. I think businesses are already making a set of changes, especially those that trade intensively with EU countries, expecting a significant degree of change in some ways. So I think with an agreement, people probably won't notice much in terms of a change at the end of the year. Now, let's have a look at your current position, because, of course, you ran for Tory leadership back last year, and then you appointed Boris Johnson's chancellor. Very short period you were in the Treasury for. What do you feel when you look back on that period? For me to be appointed as chancellor was a huge privilege. And I'd like to look back at that period and think, you know, I've made my contribution, especially around the preparations. Potentially, we could have had a no deal. I think it was important to be properly prepared for that. The spending review that I did, the work that we've done to set about an infrastructure revolution, the policies that we put in economic policies in our manifesto. So I was pleased to be able to contribute at that level. And I hope the government carries through many of those policies. And from what I can see, and uh, despite this crisis coming along, which no one could have clearly have foreseen, is that much of what we've set out to do, having that infrastructure revolution, spreading opportunity, the so-called sort of leveling up agenda, that is not only going to stay, but I think this crisis makes it even more important that we deliver on that. Now, this row all began when you left the Treasury, was to do with special advisors. These are political appointees who are hired across Whitehall to help ministers deliver their political agendas separate to civil servants who are part of the permanent government. And you had a bit of a dispute with Boris Johnson and his officials about that. Do you have any regrets about walking away? And can you tell us what happened in that meeting with the Prime Minister back in February? <laughs> uh, nice try. You'll have to wait for my memoirs. But I made it very clear at the time when I left government in a statement to Parliament about why I left. I have nothing really to add to that. But it is important in any government, whether it's members of the cabinet or the wider team with special advisors, that people work well and closely together. You know, I talked about some of the challenges in that area in this government. It's not the first government to have those kind of challenges and it won't be the last. When you look at the role of Dominic Cummings, who's obviously become even more infamous, I think, over the last couple of months, when he made that talk to Barnard Castle, I think you put a statement out saying it was not necessary or justified. Do you think he's someone who's become too powerful as an advisor, you know, giving his own press conference in Downing Street and for many people's eyes is actually the real prime minister? I think any prime minister needs to make sure that they're getting advice from a broad set of people. And actually, in the time that you know, I worked at the top table with Boris, what I found was that, you know, first of all, he would be getting advice from not just his most senior special advisor, but from many sources, including, of course, uh, myself and other ministers. And he would listen to that and weigh up the arguments. And sometimes he'd say, look, I need to go away and think about that, as he should, especially when we were making big decisions. So I don't want to get into anyone particular advisor. I just do think it's important that the government is listening to a broad set of opinions, especially when we face the biggest challenge for this country in living memory. I think it's no exaggeration to say that. And so far, from the government's point of view, they're trying to do their very best. But the prime minister himself has admitted there will be lessons to learn about this. 
but we've got to, to get the best in terms of dealing with this crisis. It's important to listen to a broad set of opinions. Indeed. Now, when you were in the Treasury, one of the big legacies you've got, of course, was the appointment of Andrew Bailey as the Bank of England governor. And there's been some chatter recently that, in fact, that he was very much your choice, not Downing Street's choice. And something Downing Street would have preferred Andy Haldane, who's the bank's chief economist. Are you at all worried that now you've gone and that Mr. Bailey was your appointment, he might be eased out and they might try and put someone else in as governor? Well, I'm not going to get into such decisions and how they're made. Just to say that, obviously, it was my decision, but uh, fully supported by the government and the prime minister. And the prime minister, I know, holds the governor in the highest possible regard. And as I said at the time, and it hasn't changed, it was a competitive field. But Andrew Bailey was the standout candidate. And if you look at how he's handled this crisis, I think he stands out amongst central bankers across the world. Now, for a totally different topic, since you've left office, you've spoken quite publicly about diversity and the need for more of it in public life. And also, you've spoken about about your experience with racism. Did you experience much racism during your time in politics? No, I don't think so. And I use the word think deliberately because, you know, sometimes you just wouldn't know. But, you know, if you're talking about my time since being a member of parliament the last 10 years, no, I don't. And I've looked back because recent events, the movements, understandably, after the killing of George Floyd against uh, racial injustice around the world, people have asked me this type of question. And, and I think actually looking at British politics today, especially in the last decade, in all parties, especially the two major parties, we've seen you know, more and more diversity in the Conservatives. If you look at both the last roles I had in government, Home Secretary and Chancellor, my successors have uh, come from uh, ethnic minorities. And I think that's great to see. And I hope it acts as an inspiration to so many other younger people, especially from ethnic minority backgrounds in this country, to know that you can achieve your dreams. Do you think there's enough diversity in the government and the Conservative Party? Because I think a lot of people, when they'll look at the Conservative benches, they will see a sea of old white men is traditionally, I think, how it might be seen there. And some people have said, well, in fact, the Tory party needs to move faster and get a more variety of people from all walks of life among its representatives. Well, first of all, there's been huge steps forward in terms of diversity on the Conservative benches. I uh, remember when I was a candidate in the 2010 election, there were only two Conservative MPs from an ethnic minority background. And today, I don't know the exact number, but it's well over 25, 30 ethnic minority background MPs. That said, if you're asking me, do I think that we should have more diversity, not just in terms of ethnic minority, but also in terms of gender, in terms of background of people, social background, that is only a good Thing And the Conservative Party, over, especially since uh, David Cameron's leadership has changed a lot, Boris Johnson has rightly continued that. And like me, he believes that it brings real strength to government. The one area I would pick out, if I may, is you mentioned government. And in the broader sense, I think the civil service could do with more diversity, both in terms of the ethnic background of people, but also in terms of social background. I do think in the time that you know, I, I've spent in government running five government departments, that whilst uh, I would agree with anyone that we have uh, the best civil servants in the world, they do tend in larger number to come from very similar backgrounds, very similar schools, similar universities. And I think that kind of group think is not a great thing for the best possible form of government. 
I think this is something that Mr. Cummings is very enthusiastic about. He called for misfits and weirdos, which might not be exactly what you have in mind in trying to get more diversity within the civil service. But I think he certainly said that there should be people from more school backgrounds and more from parts of the country. And he's talked about physically moving the civil service out and about. Do you agree with that too, that it should be more devolved from Whitehall? I do, actually. I might not use the same terms as Mr. Cummings there, but I agree with the broad push to diversify the backgrounds of members of the civil service, but also, yes, in terms of moving decision-making away from Whitehall. That is both in terms of devolving powers. You know, I championed the local government secretary, the metro mayors, and created more metro mayors than anyone else, and also set out new powers to be devolved to local areas in planning and skills and other areas. And I think we can certainly do more of that. In fact, not just can do, I think it is essential for the economic recovery as well. A lot of the decisions around infrastructure should not be made in Whitehall. They should be made at the local level because local leaders, local communities do have a better idea of what they need and what their priorities should be. So this whole idea of devolving more power, spreading it out around the country it's generally a good thing. And, you know, you talked about how the Conservative parties got better at recruiting a more diverse range of MPs. You know, how could the civil service get better at recruiting a more diverse range of people? Well, those kinds of initiatives have been around, at least for the last couple of years, have been a real push on this. And they're starting to already bear fruit. You know, So, for example, in the Treasury, there's a scheme that was put in place a couple of years ago to attract more both interns and degree apprentices from disadvantaged backgrounds. I met some of them myself, and that's a great way to do that. I think also just going out and speaking more to young people from different backgrounds, having civil servants go out to their schools, their communities, and just talk a bit more about what they do can encourage more people to apply. So there's work being done. I think it needs to be done a lot more because as we get that diversity, we would all benefit. And how do you feel about quotas? Because that's one thing some people say is an easier way to try and fix this. If the civil service or the Conservative Party said you need to have a certain percentage of people from a BME background. I'm completely against quotas. You know, if there were quotas, for example, on you know, ethnic minority ministers or MPs, I would have felt, whether it's right or wrong, I would have just felt that when I became a minister, the only reason it happened is because someone needed to meet a quota somewhere. We're blessed in this country. We have uh, people, whether they're from ethnic minorities or or any background, that have huge skills and talent. And uh, we don't need quotas to try and bring that talent forward. There are other positive, more positive ways to do it, but quotas is not the answer. How do you feel about the Black Lives Matter movement, which has had a huge cultural impact in the UK? And I think many people in government and across public life have supported the aims of the movement, if not necessarily tearing down statues or the Marxist sympathies of some of the supporters of it. Well, I support the words Black Lives Matter, lowercase, you know, not the actual movement, capital BLM. For everything I've sort of read and heard about the movement, It's a leftist organization that believes in hard left anti-capitalist policies, which I think if those kind of policies were actually pursued would make it much harder for people of any background, whether ethnic minority, not to achieve their dreams and have equality. And so the actual movement in terms of fighting for racial equality, that's what I support. I think that after that horrific killing of George Floyd, it is perfectly understandable 
why so many people felt that they had to get out there and express their views and bring about change. And uh, it, it provoked a lot of soul searching, of course, here in the UK as well. And whilst I, I'm the first to say the UK is not the US, we've got a lot to celebrate when it comes to living together and respecting each other. We still do have our challenges and uh, that's why I welcome this new commission that's been set up. But we need to focus on those challenges. And it's really important that we show uh, that we're going to make even more change. And last but not least, look to the future. What's next for you? Can you see yourself returning to government in the near future? And what's the one big thing that is coming in politics that we're not maybe thinking about yet? Being back on the back bench is the one thing it's allowed me to do, which I haven't had the ability to do for a long time in a way. It's just a time to really sort of sit down and properly think about some of the big challenges we're facing, what might be the answers. So on the economy, I've done a, a project with the Centre for Policy Studies. I've done a series of, uh, if I may mention, uh, my own podcast set on Sky with Ed Conway on this crisis. And I continue to want to spend a lot of time on this thinking. And if there was an opportunity to get back into government in the right role and make a difference, that's what I came into politics, of course, I would think about that. The one big thing, I think I'd end where we started. It's this crisis. The set of changes are profound beyond just health and the economy. It's going to change international relationships. We're already seeing that vis-a-vis -vis China and other countries. If there's one other thing I can mention very quickly is the work I've also started doing as a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, and that's around crisis planning. And if there's one big thing we can learn about this crisis, it's going to be how this type of crisis, which is a sort of progressive crisis that is continuing even six months after it first started, we're learning new things about it and having to respond to that, is very different to the kinds of crises, I think, that in advanced countries that have been typically planned for. Because when you plan for a cyber attack, a terrorist attack, you know, these are one-off single events and they happen and governments respond. Whereas I think this pandemic, what it's shown us is that this is not a one-off single event. It sort of happens and it continues and it keeps changing. And we need a way in government to be able to respond to these progressive, continuous, sort of high impact, low probability events. Well, having witnessed what the coronavirus has done to our society and economy, I don't think many people will disagree with you. Sajid Javid, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of Payne's Politics. Thank you very much again to Sajid Javid for coming on this interview special. If you like this podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We'll be back on Saturday with our regular analysis of the week in Westminster. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Fiona Simon, Liam Nolan, Josh Delamere, and Breen Turner, with research by George Steer. As ever, thanks for listening. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. 
You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.